I'm feeling a bit under the weather this morning, which is why I'm wearing this coat. I can't seem to get warm today. Funny story behind this coat. I actually found it in our lost and found here. <laughs> so They didn't say it needed to be found by the original owner. So I found it. It's pretty awkward if this is your coat. <laughs> so if this is your coat, please come see me following service and we can work something out. But technically it's been mine for like five years. So it was a while ago, and I watched it. I'll see things in the lost and found, and then I just keep tabs on them because I'd like them. <laughs> I don't do that. I'm just, <laughs> I'm not feeling too good. Let me, let me pray. I'll probably pray a couple times. Um, but let me pray first just to pray for my own sake more than anyone else. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us to come together the way you've called us to come together and to be about you, to worship you, to sing songs to you, uh, to pray to you, to listen to the preaching of your word as our hearts and souls are helped by you. Will you help us now as we think about this third chapter in the book of Job? Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just that time when God can't give it. You are like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hope to hear, where is God? When you are happy and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Those two quotes, C.S. Lewis said the first after his wife died, 
And Job said the second after his children died. Job's words in Job 3, which we're looking at today, are shocking words. They are jolting words. He is full of doubt. He is full of despair. He is, I would say Job is so full of doubt and so full of despair, the reader may even wonder, like Job's friends did, we'll see, whether or not this man really loves and trusts God. His friends will look at him and say, you really love and trust God. How can you talk this way? We may think the same when we read words like this from Job or C.S. Lewis. His words are also shocking. Along with many of the other words that he wrote in his little book called A Grief Observed. The words of C.S. Lewis in A Grief Observed are especially Shocking in light of the fact that 20 years earlier he had written a book called The Problem of Pain to help people when they're suffering. And even he said that for a season his own arguments proved completely ineffective when he faced grief himself. Couldn't get out. In fact, I thought this was interesting. Because his own writing seemed to not be helped by his own previous writing, when he first published A Grief Observed, he kept it a secret and published it under a pseudonym, N.W. Clerk, not wanting people and his friends to know what he was going through. Maybe a bit embarrassed. I don't know. The truth came out when his friends started to recommend the book to him. <laughs> this guy writes just like you. You'll love it. But Job 3, it's not under a pseudonym. It's not hidden from us. I mean, here is Job 3 right here in our Bible. So why, we should ask, why is Job 3 in the Bible? What is a chapter like this doing in the Bible? And many have asked that question throughout history. I mean, here is a so-called Job. Here is a so-called righteous man, and he is sinking deeply into doubt and despair. And this does not, at first blush, make God look good. I mean, this is your best this is your best man. Job is his best man. There's no one, we're told, in all the earth like Job. And here he is, when suffering comes, sinking deeply into doubt and despair. If you, if you were compiling books of the Bible, would this chapter make it in? Would this book make it in? Isn't this an embarrassing part of Job's testimony? These doubts, this depression, this despair. So this morning, let's look at Job chapter 3 and find help 
in our own suffering and help as we help others and make Josh's problem worse. Let me preach one more time. Our Father in heaven, now as we turn our attention to this third chapter of Job, we pray that you would enlighten our minds and increase the affection in our hearts for you and press our wills to follow you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what has happened to Job to lead Job to talk like this in chapter 3? What has happened to Job to get him to this point? Just a couple weeks ago, Job was at home on his wealthy estate, the happy husband and father of ten children. And what happened? In one day, he lost his wealth and all of his children. One day blindsided, lost everything he had, lost all ten of his children. He begins to mourn, and then as he begins to mourn, he loses his health. He comes down with a life-threatening sickness that covered his body with open sores, we're told, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then finally, as if that wasn't unbearable enough, he lost the help and support of his wife as she succumbed to the overwhelming grief. And so there he was at the end of chapter 2. You remember the picture? He's sitting there at the end of chapter 2. He's sitting by a fire. He's covered himself in ashes, and he's scraping his sores with a broken piece of pottery. And he's joined by three of his friends. Verse 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days, seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Evidently, Job's friends assumed that he was on his deathbed. Because this was the sort of behavior that would take place at a funeral. They didn't think that he was going to survive. They didn't expect him to make it. And for one week, we're told, they just sat quietly with Job. Which we will see was Job's friends at their best. They were at their best when they had nothing to say. Just quietly there for him, comforting him. Some of you have have been in times where you needed comfort and you've had well-meaning, maybe even brothers and sisters come to you and comfort you with words and they just, they weren't comforting. 
they weren't the right words. They were too many words. And what you really wanted was someone just to sit down next to you and listen. These are good friends at this point. Just seven days, seven nights. They're just heaving with him. They're just crying with him. They're just mourning with him. But there is something else that has happened to Job, or you could say not happened to Job. Where is God? The reader who's been reading the book and and going behind the scenes with the author knows what God is doing and knows what God is up to. Job doesn't know any of this. So where is God for Job? He was probably content, I think he was, with the silence of his friends. But the silence of God was deafening. Where is God? No vision from God, no word from heaven, no prophet. And God's silent with Job is going to continue for a long time almost to the very end of this book, for months at least, God is going to be silent with Job as he suffers. And so it's going to lead Job to say things like he says in Job chapter 3, and it will lead him to say things like he says in chapter 23, verses 3 and 4 and 8 and 9. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. He's talking about God. That I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. It's as C.S. Lewis said. I'm going to God in my grief, and all I hear is the door locking and bolting and dead bolting on the other side, and then it's quiet. That's how Job feels. And he talks about it throughout the book. So all of that, to this point, that is what has happened to Job to lead Job to talk like this. He's lost his wealth and his family and his health, and it feels like he's lost God. I wonder how you would feel. I tried to think about that this week. How would I feel if I lost everything like Job? So now that his friends are there, getting to chapter 3 now, Now that his friends are there, a week has gone by. They've sat with him for a week. And Job opens his mouth and he says chapter 3. Which sounds very different from what Job said in chapter 1, verse 21, and chapter 2, verse 10. Sounds like a different guy. Remember what he said when tragedy first struck? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, what are we going to receive only the good things from God and and not receive the bad from God. But a week has gone by. He's no longer in shock. And certain emotions are settling in. 
He's been through so much. Look at chapter 3, and let's ask, as we look at chapter 3, what is going on in Job's heart and mind? So we know what's happened to get him to this point, but now look at this window we have into his soul. And let's ask ourselves, what is going on in Job's heart and mind? What is he feeling? It is, to be sure, a dark night of his soul. He is in deep despair, and in chapter 3, he gives full vent to his feelings, and it is shocking. It is shocking what Job says. In the first 10 verses, I'll read them now, he wishes he wasn't born. Verses 1 through 10. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Job wishes in these first ten verses that he wasn't even born. And then he moves on and he begins to question the point of his life. Okay, so I was born. I wish I wasn't even born, but I was born. But why? For this, what is the point of my life? What is the purpose? Listen to his questions, verse 11 through 19. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For when I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. He questions the purpose of his life. After wishing he wasn't even born. And then finally, it seems, for the rest of the verses in chapter 3, he wonders why God just hasn't gotten on with it and killed him. Why am I still here? Why so much pain? Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. 
For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So what is going on in Job's heart and mind? What is Job feeling? It's pretty clear, isn't it? He's depressed. He is doubting the wisdom and the goodness of God. He is in despair. And he will be there in the slew of despond for months. For months, Job's going to be there. He'll talk like this throughout the book. Let me give you some examples. In chapter 6, verse 12, he asks God, do you think that I am made of stone or bronze? How much do you think I can take? In 7, 1 through 10, he complains that man's days are already short and difficult, and now God has added misery, and he's confident that he will never see a good day again. In verse 20 of chapter 7, he asks God what he has done to make himself the target of God's arrows. In 10.8, he wonders why God created him only to destroy him. And in chapter 13.24, Job asks God, why are you treating me like an enemy? So this despair, this depression, these doubts, these will carry on with Job for months. And this is, I mean, listen to those verses. This is more than just negativity. This is, this is more than Eeyore. I love Eeyore. You know who Eeyore is? Okay. I think it's great. I think his pessimism is hilarious. And I love, I love how his friends are sort of just immune to his negativity and they love him unconditionally. That's the greatest thing about Winnie the Pooh. I think there's a quote, uh, you know, Eeyore's most famous quote. It's on coffee mugs and stuff. And he says, uh, have a nice day, if it is one, and it probably won't be. Some of you are, you're like that. But these are not, I mean, this is more than that from Job. This is not just a, a glass half empty guy. This is not just a pessimistic guy. This is not just some negativity I mean, listen to how he talked. He has been racked with tragedy, and he is sinking as deep as it looks like you can go. And the things that he says, are they're not mild. They're not mild assertions. They're not mild questions. If, if somebody talked like this at your community group, it would make things very uncomfortable. It may even get a person rebuked at your community group. He's hit bottom. Some of the things he says, I think, 
still trying to work this out, are on the verge of blasphemous at times. They are sharp and pointed and presumptuous, and they seem to horrify Job's friends. Read on in the book as we will. So he's in deep despair. That is what is going on in his, at this point, frail heart and mind. So now, let's try and get to why is this chapter in the inspired word of God? Why is this here? If I'm not guided by the Holy Spirit and I'm putting books and chapters together to persuade you to devote yourself to God, I might not put this chapter in there. I don't want you to know that this can happen. I don't want you to know people talk like this. It doesn't, at first blush, make God look good. Think of all the chapters in the Bible. This is in contrast to many of them. But 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all of it, every word, all Scripture, it's breathed out by God. And it's useful. It's useful. So how is Job 3 useful? So this text, I mean chapters 1 through 3, but especially chapter 3, raises and answers three very important questions for Christians. It raises and sort of answers three very important questions for Christians. Questions you have. Questions you've had. Maybe some you've been afraid to ask. So question number one. Can this happen to innocent people? Think about what's happened to Job. Can can that happen to innocent people? Is this a story? Can this happen to Christians? Where are we going with those questions when we ask them? Can this happen to me? As you want to know that. I'd like this to just be a legend, a myth, a fanciful story, but it makes me ask a question. It's in God's word. Can this happen to Christians? The short answer is yes. Sure it can. It did. It has. It's happening now. It may happen to you. Yes, this can happen to Christians. I have no reason to think that Satan doesn't still come into the presence of God somehow, however that works. I have no reason to doubt that he doesn't still do that as he did with Job. And I suppose he could this afternoon come before God and he could ask about me. I hope he doesn't. But I think he could. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, do you remember Jesus told Peter that Satan had come and asked Jesus if he could mess with Peter? Can I sift him? So I have no reason to doubt that it doesn't still play out in many ways the way it played out even in the time of Job. The reality is, friends, righteous people suffer. It's true, and we're... Somewhat 
insulated from this today as 21st century Americans. Some of you aren't, I know, but many of us are. We're sort of insulated from it. We just, just change the channel when we hear about it. But righteous people suffer. The book of Job demonstrates the reality of innocent suffering. Good Christians suffer. It's not like if you're a good Christian, you won't suffer. Or you become a better Christian. Or that's why you're suffering. Have you heard that message? You're not faithful enough and that's, not, that's why it's not going well. What a horrible thing to say to someone. Aside from the fact that it's not true. What a horrible thing to say to someone. That you're not faithful enough and that's why you don't have your health and that's why you don't have your wealth. Oh, is that why it went like it did for William Tyndale and John Rogers and Jim Elliott and all of the martyrs in Hebrews chapter 11? No, righteous people suffer. Christians suffer. Members here have suffered and are suffering today. You know them. You are them. Octavius Winslow says something that I think is important here when we talk about the reality of Christian suffering. And I want to say it with him. I do not mean that we are to be always living in gloomy anticipation of trial. Many of God's saints live in that unhappy, and I would add unholy mood, always anticipating evil, yet there is a sense in which we should not be surprised by it. And that's where we're getting. We should not be surprised when suffering comes our way. We should not be surprised when things do not go well for us. We should not be blindsided. That can set you so far back. So I'm not expecting everything to unravel every day. But I'm not surprised if it does. I'm not somehow immune to that. One day I will be in heaven. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. I long for that day. But for now, I'm not immune to it. Christians suffer. I mean, that is one of the reasons that, personally speaking, pastorally speaking, this is one of the reasons I decided to preach through the book of Job. Because I know this is true. I know some of you have suffered greatly. And I want to prepare those of you who haven't. I want to prepare you for suffering greatly. I want you to be as ready as you can be. Because I know that when you suffer, I know this. I know it's going to threaten your faith. But in the end, it's going to strengthen it. I know that. But I know some of you have or you're going to feel like Job does in chapter 3. This is also the reason the suffering in the world that, and really the suffering of innocent people, that's what people have a problem with. It's one of the main reasons people reject God, isn't it? This world is too screwed up for there to be a good and powerful God. So it's important for us to think about this. So to answer again, yes, of course, this kind of suffering can happen to Christians. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations. So this could happen to me. That's the point. It's true. This could happen to me. So if it does happen to me, here's our next question. Number two. 
If it happens to me, if I suffer like Job suffered, or maybe suffer close to how Job suffered, number two, when a Christian suffers, is it okay to feel the way Job felt? That's another question we ask. Like, holy smokes. Is that, is that normal? Is that, and I think that's the language we use. Is that okay? Is that okay that Job feels like that? I mean, remember how he felt, the depression, the doubt, the despair. I mean, here's what I want to know. Can a Christian feel that way? I mean, if you're a real Christian, can you feel that way? Can a Christian wish they were dead? Job wishes he was dead. If I go through suffering and I wish that I'm dead, is that normal? Is that okay? Is, is, is Job sinning? It, it, can Christians feel hopeless? Does, does Job chapter 3 sound hopeful to you? Like there's no, he doesn't come out of it at the end. He's just going to keep talking through the book and he's not going to just bounce out of it. I mean, so you think he's sunk deep and okay, he's hit bottom and oh, it's like a trap door. And there's another level of bottom. And he just keeps dropping down. And, he, and his doubts increase and his despair increases. And I think his depression increases. So can Christians feel hopeless like this? Yes. Yes. And they do. That is something we're learning from Job 3. And we shouldn't miss it. Job was the most righteous man on earth and listened to him in chapter 3. Amazing. He's probably more godly than I'll ever be. And listen to chapter 3. It's amazing. Christians are not immune. Lewis was not immune. Even his own book on the problem of pain was of no help to him in the middle of his grief, he said. Wrote that book full of these great arguments. And, and then he later in life married an American writer, Joy Davidman. And I think she died about four years after they were married of cancer. And he grieved and he took a journal as he grieved, and that's what turned into that work, a, a grief observed. And he said that for a season, not forever, but that for a season, even his own arguments were of no help to him when he was in the middle of his grief. He didn't know up from down. He didn't know left from right. This is Job in chapter 3. So let me give you some more biblical examples in addition to Job 3. Let me give you some more biblical examples of depressed Christians. Okay, this, these are just in your Bible. These are heavy texts, I know. But the Bible is the most honest book in the universe. The most honest book. So listen to these examples. Look at Jeremiah. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah suffered and despaired. In fact, it actually appears that Jeremiah memorized Job chapter 3. Which is kind of funny for those of you who are familiar with Jeremiah. Like who memorizes Job 3? Jeremiah, he would memorize this weeping prophet, right? So uh, listen to Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 14 through 18. It sounds like he's memorizing, it's just quoting 
Job chapter 3. So what has just happened is uh, he had been beaten by a priest. Not a good priest, obviously, but had been beaten by a priest who didn't like what he was saying, but it was from the Lord, and threw Jeremiah in prison. And then the next morning, Jeremiah gets out of prison, and he goes to the priest and says, you and all your friends are going to be hauled off to Babylon, and you're going to die there. Pretty awesome. And then, but then he goes, but then he goes, and he says this, cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. That's Jeremiah. Look at the psalmist in Psalm 88. The psalmist suffered and despaired. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults, they destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. How bad is that? My friends are darkness. Look at David. David suffered and despaired. Listen to Psalm 22. Verse 1 and 2, verse 14 and 15. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And finally, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Now, I'm not saying Jesus sinned, Jesus did not sin. Some of these other men, including Job, I'm still trying to figure that out, may have crossed lines. Jesus did not. Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not doubt. But he did feel despair. Look at Mark 14, verse 32 through 35. When they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus knew what it was like to be in a place that he did not want to be. Jesus knew what it was to despair, to suffer greatly. Of course, you know to suffer more than anyone has ever suffered. To suffer more, I believe, than the cumulative suffering of all of mankind. He suffered. How much? Think about it. How great does the suffering need to be for God to pray to God to be released from it? That's what we have in Mark 14. Is it okay to feel the way Job felt? Can Christians be depressed? Yes. 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 So finally, I think there's an even more important question, which will be our final question. A Christian may suffer the way Job suffered. Check. A Christian may even feel the way Job felt. Check. But, number three, can a Christian talk the way Job talked? One thing to feel it. Another to talk like this, and you could read on and on in the book. Does Job sin when he talks before God this way? Now, my answer to that is no. Not yet. I'm not sure, just being honest with you, I am not sure about later. I mean, you can read ahead this week. Just just read what Job says. And there's times I read what Job says and I think, no way. There's the, you can't say that. That's a sin. But then you get to the end in chapter 42, verse 7, and God goes after his three friends and he says that Job didn't, did not sin in what he said. So I'm, does that apply to everything? I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. But at this point, it's clear to me by chapter 3, no, Job has not sinned. I, I wish I was dead, he's saying. He has doubts. He's doubting the wisdom of God. He's doubting the goodness of God. He is despairing, but his faith remains intact. And it will for the entire book. Does Job sin when he talks before God this way? No. I don't believe Job sins here. Another way of asking this question to make it more practical and personal, and this is a tricky question, and even as I'm preaching, I'm concerned about being misunderstood. So I want to say this is, and answer this as carefully as I can, but maybe another way of asking this is, is it okay to give full vent to your emotions before God? I mean, I think that's the question that Christians ask when they read Job 3. Like, whoa. 
Uh, we don't want to even relate to that. So that's why we say, you know, that can't happen to me, right? I can't suffer. No, you can suffer. Okay, well, if I suffer, I'm a Christian. I'll never feel that way. No, clearly you can feel that way. Okay, I've suffered. I feel that way. But, I mean, listen to him giving full vent to his emotions, just letting it all out before God. Is that okay? Can I do that? Is, is God okay with Job doing that? So here's my answer. Yes. Yes. You must. You must be honest. Now I'm not saying Now I'm not saying that everything you may be feeling toward God will be right. For example, you should never feel angry at God. And if you feel angry at God, you're in sin. Uh, we don't need to ask questions to figure it out or find out how bad it's been. Right? If you feel anger, because the only, the only anger that's even good is righteous anger, and you, of course, can't feel righteous anger toward God. So if you feel anger toward God, you are in sin. And you should express it. This is the tricky part. That's what I'm saying here. I mean, here is Job. I don't think he's angry yet, but he is giving full vent to his emotions. So I am not saying that everything, again, I want to clarify, I'm not saying that everything you may be feeling toward God will be right. I'm not saying that there aren't wrong ways to express things to God. I'm not saying those things. But if you have these emotions, tell God. Listen, he already knows. So my answer is not tell God because he can handle it. That's a stupid thing to say, and people say things like that sometimes. Oh, so let God have it. Just tell him whatever you want because he's a big boy and he can handle it. And so that doesn't make any sense. But that's not why. God knows what you're feeling, even when you're feeling things that are not right and are not good or are sinful or don't make any sense. God knows. It's not like you're going to give him new information. God, I'm angry at you. Are you serious? What? The? I thought we were good. It's not like a married couple that's like they're not communicating and I didn't know and you felt this for months. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. He's not clueless. He knows what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're feeling. And so you need to be, here's the point, honest in your suffering. And I don't, this is why I bring this up, think about how to apply it to us as a church. I don't think we're good at this, friends. I think we feel like Job 3, but we're afraid to say that we feel like Job 3. Afraid to say it on our knees, just between us and God. Afraid to say it to our believing friends. Because we're worried about what they're going to think of us. 
or what they're going to say or who they're going to tell. A lot of us aren't even very safe, comfortable places for friends to come and talk to us like that. Chapter 3 is an example of honest despair. It's an example of honest suffering. Don Carson said it this way. God does not blame us if in our suffering we frankly vent our despair and confess our loss of hope, our sense of futility, our lamentations about life itself. Of course, It is possible in grief and misery to say the wrong things, to say blasphemous things. That's the qualification I wanted to make. Job's wife is not praised for her counsel, curse God and die. But within certain boundaries, it is far better to be frank about our grief, candid in our despair, honest with our questions, than to suppress them and wear a public front of puffy piety. And maybe we struggle with that. I mean, you heard me rattling off these verses. I mean, we're in Psalm, and we're in Jeremiah, and we're in Job, and we're in Mark chapter 14. And I mean, is it just that we don't feel that way anymore? Are we just doing better? We don't ever hit those low points. We don't ever hit the, the, the darkness like that. We don't ever have these seasons. I mean, is that why we don't bring this up with one another? Have we, are we just evolved? Just better and greater Christians, maybe? I'm joking. I don't think any of that's it. But how honest are we in our suffering? What an example Job is to us, and what an example we have when we look at the Lord and how patient he will be with our brother Job. He's going to deal with Job. Oh, man, is he going to deal with Job. He's going to take care of Job. He's going to take care of his buddies. But he's so patient with Job. So patient with him. So friends, have you suffered like this? Have you felt like this? Have you talked like this? See an example in Job. Not a perfect example. He's not a perfect example. But an, an example of a, of a godly man, one day full of joy, the next day full of sorrow. He's an example of this. Hear his honesty before the Lord. Maybe some of you have friends this morning who are suffering. And I wonder if you're patient with them. I wonder if you just shut them down when they start talking like this. I wonder if you doubt, I wonder if you're quick to doubt that they're even a Christian. If they talk like this. It's exactly what Job's friends did. And it will not go well for them. Jump to conclusions. Or can you handle that far from perfect, far from polished communication 
from your husband or wife or your kids or your brothers and sisters in the church as they're working these things out? Can you be patient with them? Can you listen to them? If rebuke needs to happen, you can rebuke. If confrontation needs to happen, you can confront. If they need to be challenged, you can challenge. But isn't there a season for closing our mouths and opening our ears and listening to people? Especially when they're suffering like this. But maybe sometimes we can be too quick. Hey, you can't talk like that. Or that's not true. Or that's not. Yeah, I know. They probably even tell you that. I know it's not true. I know it's not true. I don't believe the things I'm saying I believe right now. Have you felt like that? Let me wrap this sermon up. Just a quote and then a final, what, one sentence summation. Uh, some of you know who Joni Erickson Tata is. She is a, uh, a writer and speaker and uh, evangelist. She's a believer today. When she was young, I think she was a teenager in her early 20s, she uh, dove into a lake. It was uh, much more shallow than she thought, and she broke her neck and was, has been a quadriplegic ever since. And if you ever have a chance to read anything that Joni Erickson Tata has written, especially in regards to her perspective of her suffering, it's amazing. Uh, but here's a woman who, who sees that day as a gift from God and who sees it as God's tool in shaping and forming her into the joyful woman that she is. But she reflected on Job chapter 3, and she said this, and so much more insightful coming from someone like her. Make no mistake, she said, Job, his questions to God weren't of the polite Sunday school variety. They were pointed, sharp, and seemed at times on the border of blasphemy. Tough, searching questions. Job's friends were horrified, and that, to me, is the comfort of the book of Job. What meant the most to me in my suffering was that God never condemns Job for his doubt and despair. That is true. God was even ready to take on the hard questions. Ah, but the answers, they weren't quite the ones Job was expecting. We'll get to those. And we'll even get to more questions about pain next week. She goes on. For some odd reason, however, it comforted me to realize that God did not condemn me for my plying him with questions. I didn't have to worry about insulting God for my outbursts in time of stress and fear and pain. My despair was not going to shock him. God, according to the book of Job, is never threatened by our questions. In conclusion, friends, be honest in your suffering. That's the application I would encourage us to take today. Be honest in our suffering. God is so patient with his beloved as he leads them into and through affliction. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. 
I hope that we have a, a more clear understanding of what it's doing in your book and why you have this difficult, uncomfortable example put before us of your servant Job. And Lord, we're thankful for his example. Uh, God, as we suffer and as we suffer with one another and as we sort of stumble and fumble around trying to do this well, we're thankful for this picture of honest suffering in the book of Job. We look forward, God, to continuing our study of this book, to seeing how you dealt with our brother and how we know you deal with us for your glory and for our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.